0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, impositions In and Innovations, we discuss the kinds of changes that are considered to be innovative, and the kinds that perhaps are
1: not. Action. So... Steve and I are here once again in the lower level of the Walsh Library in the Light Center, and we're recording a short episode of the Twice Over podcast for you. We thought we'd talk a little bit more about innovation, which is our theme for this season.
0: Is this is this a very special episode?
1: It's a very special episode of the Twice Over. So we're gonna Over learn podcast. some life lessons. We are. You know, there'll be laughter and tears.
0: It will become a part of you. <laughs> so we we've been thinking about innovation, at least in our conversation so far on the podcast, I think in in two ways. Okay. The first is technological. So looking at innovations as really using new software and hardware tools. And that seems like an easy way in. Like we didn't have this thing before and now we have this thing. This is a change. It's innovative. And that's not to say that that's not accurate. Right. The other way is in the built environment we're going to a- arrange the physical space in this new way and see what that new way of, of being in that physical space, what, what are the effects? And so examples are removing the computers from the computer lab, say. Right. Or if you think about your classroom, how, how frustrating it can be to walk into a classroom and all the chair desks are like screwed down to the floor That inhibits how I'd like to arrange students in the physical space and so on. So by making modifications to the physical space, we can see them as being, if not innovative, at least more conducive to innovation. And it could be just stuff like I press a button and all the shades go down, or I have a podium PC or something like that, right?
1: Right, right. So I think a lot about that because a lot of the technology of the classroom is... Unchanged since ancient Greece, right? I mean, we can recognize when we see paintings of, you know, Plato and Aristotle or Sappho at an academy in ancient Greece, we can kind of see, oh, that figure must be the teacher figure, and those are the students, right? Whether they're reclining on benches or sitting in chairs. There are a couple recognizable configurations of furniture that haven't changed very much. And maybe it's time to think about what those configurations do for us, what we mean by them, what they signify, how we might want to change them, right? And so the big question that many of us ask when we go into a classroom is are you going to sit in rows or are you going to sit in the circle?
0: Yeah, because I think we know that. At this point, how the students are arranged in relation to the teacher, each other, has a real effect on what you can do in that space. Right. Um, so if if those two categories seem to work, right, technological and physical, mm-hmm. what are other categories of innovation? And what gets to be considered an innovation?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, one-to-one laptops are considered an innovation, but decolonizing the syllabus is not sort of talked about in quite that same way. Does that does that sound right to you?
1: I want it to be an innovation. I want really badly to push back against what you're describing, but I have to concede that what you're describing is right, that when we talk about innovations in the classroom, our mind tends to go to physical spaces and t- technological innovations, and things like decolonizing the syllabus, things like different ways of asking our students to relate to us and to each other, to their peers. Different kinds of accommodations that we might put in place tend not to be talked about or imagined in the language of innovation. And I think that's really a failure of imagination. And it creates tensions for us, right? Because if we see questions of equity and inclusion as... um,
0: An imposition?
1: Exactly. As an imposition rather than an innovation, then people are impatient and they're irritated, right? So instead of saying, we're going to innovate by doing this incredibly exciting thing, we're going to grade our students in a different way. We're going to grade them based on the labor that they put into the work rather than their adherence to a universal standard, If we see that as an imposition from on high based on someone else's idea of what achievement means, we're irritated. If we call that an innovation, then it's an exciting experiment.
0: Yeah. So maybe the question is, what gets to be an innovation? Right. So if we think about innovation, the definition of innovation sort of shrinking to focus on technological innovation That becomes deeply problematic because of who has access to technology to enjoy the benefits of that, what we're calling an innovation, and who gets to be innovative. We're saying that, okay, so again, if we think about innovation, not just as something new, Mm -hmm. but really also a project of reclamation, maybe the instructional practices like labor-based grading or student-centeredness that we might consider innovation were, were sort of erased in favor of other models of teaching and learning at scale, right? Industrialized models. Yeah. So everybody right. sits in rows. They take a standardized you know, test. We, we're dividing them up into grades. We're assigning letter grades. You know, we're sort of making chicken nuggets, right? These are the three shapes you get to be.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and so at the time, I would imagine that that was considered innovative.
1: Right. Right. People were excited about doing that. And something like a Scantron machine where you could feed in answers to a multiple choice test. Mm-hmm. What a labor-saving device for a faculty member, right? And so all of these tools are solving problems for people that maybe are the wrong problem.
0: So in one way, and this is just occurring to me as you're, as you're talking, that perhaps innovation... A marker of innovation might be efficiency. Ooh, yes. So the way that you're describing, say, labor-based grading is less efficient in the sense that it just takes more time to figure it out.
1: It's totally less efficient. But just
0: handing out a um, a multiple choice exam and a Scantron, that's like super efficient.
1: Right. And that's innovative. Right. And... And you get people excited about it because you think about it. I mean, I think about Steve Jobs saying people hate their phones, right? That's why I invented the iPhone. People hate their phones. Well, I mean, the the dirty little open secret of teaching is that professors hate grading, right? And so when someone invents the multiple choice test, people feel like, oh, that's great. This is the part of the teaching I don't like. You know, I was having a conversation with a new teacher yesterday, and she was describing something her students don't know how to do. And the other two more senior faculty and I agreed. We were like, that's right. No college first-year student knows how to do this lesson you're trying to teach. That's why we ask you to teach it in the fall of first year. And so her astonishment that her students didn't know how to do a certain thing, instead of being met with like frustration and sympathy from us, which I think is what she was expecting, the three of us said, mm-hmm, that's right. That's your job, is to teach them how to do the thing, right? Because that's a skill that is generally not taught in high school.
0: Right. And, and it
1: takes time.
0: In, in really prevalent or commonly occurring areas of teaching and learning, anything, there are no efficiencies. It's just really hard.
1: It's really hard. There are And it's are going no to take a lot
0: of time to develop some level of competence and or mastery. There's no shortcut. So in technology, this this idea, there's an app for that, right, solutionism. We can take a complex problem and solve it really efficiently. Effectiveness isn't weighted as heavily as efficiency, I think.
1: So one of the big innovations in my teaching over the past couple years has been, and I think of this as an innovation for me, has been shifting from saying to my students, do you have any questions to what questions do you have? It doesn't cost any money. It's just a small change in syntax. It is an absolute sea change in
0: mm-hmm.
1: the intention, right, and in the invitation to students. Because if I say, if I say to you, "What questions do you have?" I mean, what do you? How do you hear the difference between "Do you have any questions?" and "What questions do you have?"
0: Yeah, well, do you have any questions? Um, no, is a you know a likely. It's a possible answer.
1: Right. And, right. and sometimes, depending on tone, right? Do you have any yeah. questions? Because like, right. I'd like to move on to the next thing.
0: Sure. But I would say that asking what questions do you have is really inefficient because it's going to generate a lot more questions.
1: What if someone has a question?
0: Right. What if eight of them have questions?
1: Oh, no. <laughs> right. Because right. I wanted to get to my second point. So Ultimately,
0: do you have any questions is much more efficient because you get a lot of you know, you don't get a lot of questions. <laughs> well,
1: and, you can, and, and you can kind of...
0: T- I guess we're leaving early. Good night, everybody.
1: <laughs> you get to tick the <laughs> box of saying, I asked them for feedback.
0: And they didn't have any.
1: I think that changing your syllabus out of a recognition of the changing student population and a commitment to listening to diverse voices is an innovation. I think that there are many educators for whom that commitment is not shared, right? There are many educators for whom the commitment that is absolutely central to the way that I teach is actually a threat, right? We can't possibly start a philosophy class with, bell hooks, we have to start with Aristotle, right? We need to do everything in chronological order. So that commitment to chronology, which also ends up replicating the social inequities of the past, um, is still widely held, right? But it's it's one that I've let go of, right? I see the ways that I've changed my teaching, and just speaking for myself now, to... Um, resist chronology, to put the thinking of black women philosophers at the front of every class at the beginning of every semester.
0: So they serve as a reference point for discussion? That's
1: right. At the moment when you're the freshest, at the moment when you're paying the most attention, at the moment when you're taking the keenest notes, and at the moment when I'm setting the tone for the whole semester... I start every class with a black woman whose work I admire for the quality of her thinking and how she sets up the problems of the semester. And that's a very intentional way of sending a signal that as a middle-aged white woman, I learn a lot from black women's voices. And it is... um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if it's an innovation. That feels like a, not a word I can use on myself. Like I'm not comfortable saying I'm why, an innovator. What is teacher. it about
0: that word that you're not comfortable with?
1: Well, I th- maybe it sounds self-aggrandizing or something like that. I mean, it's right? totally self-aggrandizing, right. but that's
0: never really stopped
1: you. No, no, it's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to self-aggrandize <laughs> in other realms. Yeah, maybe that's right. But I think that like that, I was not educated to imagine a syllabus being organized other than chronologically, right? right? And my work is very historical. Mm-hmm. And so I History felt...
0: is sort of an arrow. It goes in this direction. right? And, yeah. Right.
1: But there's no reason you can't say, here's a text from 1985 that talks about Homer's women in a really interesting way. We're going to start there and then go back to Homer. And let me tell you when the Homer was written. And then we're going to move to some World War One poets. And then we're going to move to something from Shakespeare. I can remind people of the dates of all of those things and be absolutely loyal to chronology, but skip around because that's how all of us read anyway.
0: Well, that's Interesting. I think in our last dis- conversation about innovation, we talked about the Reese's peanut butter cup theory, right? <laughs> right. It's accidental. You got chocolate in my peanut butter. So what we're doing is we're playing around with relationships. You're putting together or in proximity things that aren't normally in proximity to find a new thing.
1: Totally. So, so that's it,
0: an innovation, right? It
1: could, it's an innovation, right? And it's more like Building the basket, that weird basket on Top Chef, right, where they say, make a dessert out of chocolate, mangoes, a steak bone, and beef broth, you know, and you're like, some of those baskets, it was immediately clear how to make something good, even when the basket was a little bit ridiculous. And sometimes you'd look at the basket and think, oh, this is going to be a real challenge. Like, I can't figure out the center of that set. Right, But making a surprising, I mean, this is something I think about a lot, right? When you make a surprising set rather than an expected set, you're, you're encouraging the conditions of innovative thinking.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm wondering now if we're talking more about creativity. So what's the difference then between creativity and innovation? Are they the same? Because we don't use them the same way. We don't. That's but I think maybe some of the conditions are similar. Because I, I love this idea of, you know, the, the basket. In, in removing the chronological structure, you're forcing students to develop their own their right. own system of relationships.
1: Or I have a system of relationships in mind that I'm encouraging them to see. Right? And so it might be a thematic grouping. It might be any number of things. Right? So, I mean, in some ways getting rid of chronology has, I mean, I want to get back to creativity, but let me just finish this chronology thought. When I drop chronology, I have to group text thematically, right? There has to be some kind of control, right? And so in some ways, that reorganization of my syllabus has me in more control at the beginning of the semester or at the creation of the syllabus than chronology does, right? I can't just say, Um, who knows how these texts all got here, right? There has to be a reason, and the reason isn't this one comes next. And so in some ways I'm exerting more control. But I think it creates more options for creativity for my students, and I've been more interested in what they find out to say because I think that it takes away a certain amount of false, reverence for the text i mean i want students to revere the text but i want them to revere it because they love it and understand it and are learning from it not because it's old Mm -hmm. right so that's one thing thinking about creativity and innovation i feel like innovation is much more results oriented like that's an innovation and creativity might not end up being anything right i mean the You need a space of creativity and you need play in order to get to the innovation. Mm -hmm. And so I think creativity is a condition that comes before innovation. And it's a field in which innovations can grow. But a lot of things that are creative may not be innovative.
0: Right? That's interesting.
1: So an innovation is a result and often creativity is- So innovations
0: are more productive.
1: More, I don't know if they're- more productive, but they're more outcome-oriented.
0: Okay.
1: Right? And I think because they're more outcome-oriented, I think that's why that efficiency and effectiveness get linked to innovation, Mm -hmm. right? And I think efficiency is a lot easier to measure than effectiveness. You can measure that it only took me five minutes to feed these documents through a Scantron machine back when they used to be like actual paper documents or that my students you know, scanned a QR code with their phones and did the multiple choice test on their phones and it was graded before I left the classroom.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I use multiple choice self-grading quizzes in some of the courses I teach through Blackboard because some of my assessment activities are inefficient, right? They take longer. Right. But at the, while I'm working on the inefficient forms to, to generate feedback, students have a low tolerance for ambiguity. They want to know, how am I doing in this class? So here I am grading this paper or trying to construct some kind of useful feedback for them, which is highly individualized and really inefficient. So to keep that ship afloat, keep them feeling like less anxious. Oh, I I got a 10 on the quiz. So I think I'm doing okay. Right. So we don't want to isolate the tools in this case of assessment as being either efficient or effective, but look at like kind of a mixed approach, right? There's a mixed model there.
1: Right. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. And and there's efficient and effective. And and maybe there's something else that we want to right? like generative or creative. I mean, I'd like to have that. I mean, you talk sometimes about the un, undesigned remainder, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what are other things that we want? education, innovations in education to be, right? I mean, the thing about effectiveness that's so strange is that um, I've been teaching long enough that every once in a while I'll get an email from someone who says, I was in your class 10 years ago. I hated it. I sat angry in the back. Now Virginia Woolf's my favorite writer, oh, right? Oh, so like I
0: just want you to know I feel the same way. I <laughs> still
1: Still don't like those stupid books. I was just thinking about just, it and I just really want you to know. <laughs> just checking in after all these years <laughs> to let you know. Because
0: I feel like you may have forgotten me, but I have not <laughs> I've not, not forgotten.
1: forgotten my impatience <laughs> with your course, right? And so, how, what's an effective class, right? The class you remember five years later, the class that you, I mean, there's some things we could measure very well. And some things that are incredibly important that I don't know even how to begin designing the instrument that would measure it.
0: If teaching and learning are projects of transformation, Mm -hmm. the students can change in any number of ways. And sometimes, like in your anecdote, those changes happen way beyond the end of the class. So maybe as far as... It all depends on when you stop measuring.
1: A colleague of mine used to say that... um, Student evaluations of courses are like evaluating a dentist right before the novocaine's <laughs> worn off. Right, like I mean, not in a position to to say how this went. Right, right? It was right. like you're just like it hurt. I'm numb. You know, but actually, sure, sure.
0: so let's circle back just a little bit to this idea of the colonization of the of innovation. Mm-hmm. What gets to be an innovation by technology?
1: You know, as we talk to new guests and continue thinking about these ideas of innovation, the two of us and, and and with our guests, to think about opening up ideas of innovation beyond technology, to include technology, to include ideas of architecture and space, to include ideas of administrative time, but also to include questions of access, equity, inclusion, diversity, to think about How might we think otherwise about innovation? And also to interrogate what we're excited about when we name an innovation as successful. Are we excited about it because it's efficient? Are we excited about it because it's effective? Are we excited about it because it's creative? Are we excited about it because it's sparkly and shiny and new, and maybe it's none of the above, right?
0: So I may have told you this little story before, but I I had a grant to teach non-public and public school teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade in a section of the Bronx. And to accomplish this, part of what we did was give each teacher who participated in this grant a laptop. Right. And so... In this one school, there were two math teachers right in the same hallway, more alike than different. One was integrating technology using this laptop, and the other refused to even, like, engage with it at all. And it was very early on. It was a six-year project, and we we wanted to solve this problem. Like, why were some teachers really interested in the technology and others not? Mm -hmm. And so we focused on these two teachers— and what happened was, in, in observing their teaching, one of the teachers would write and sing little math songs <laughs> to help the students understand math. The other one didn't. So we began to think about, okay, this m- math teacher who's integrating music is also integrating technology. The other teacher who's not integrating music, or or right, he's using the discipline to explain itself. So one teacher was of an integrative frame of mind. Right. So this is, I think, harkens back to your box on Top Chef. Yes. Right. We present this math teacher. Both of them are presented with this box. One teacher looks in there and sees math. The other teacher looks in there and sees math and music and technology and whatever else they see in there. And they're able to make something beautiful and new. Right. right? And so maybe just being of an, of an integrative frame of mind is another way of saying creative, right? Yes,
1: yes, I think that's right. And I think that how do we create conditions where that feels worth it, right? That feels fun, that feels like an experiment I want to try, not like, oh, I'm a math teacher, I I can't carry a tune. Like, why are you asking me to also be cute, or sing, or be a comedian, or learn a whole new technology. Yeah, so, so,
0: I mean, the problem, I guess, that in the context of this conversation, we were talking about, okay, how do we know an innova- innovation was effective, mm-hmm. and then how do we measure, right? So, right. I'm, as an outsider, thinking, it's so cool that this teacher is using music and technology in their teaching, but we'd have to dig into that a bit more to see... Okay, how do we know that's effective? Like in this context, what does effectiveness mean? So is it just that the students are performing better on the standardized mathematics exam? Does it have to do – are there other dimensions of effectiveness that we need to measure? They're feeling safer. They're feeling more engaged perhaps. Maybe More welcomed into the conversation, right? So part of effectiveness – efficiency is easier because – it's just less time. It's a, it's a pretty good measure and resources. Effectiveness is is harder because, like the student who emailed you 10 years later, there might be transformations that are happening that I'm not seeing as your teacher and you're not noticing yet as the learner. They just, they're just they still germinating. Right. Um, and so this makes the idea of what innovations are effective really hard to know.
1: I mean, I think that's why this is our theme, right? Is that, is that why? I think so. Is that <laughs> it's not easy to solve? That that neither of us are interested in innovation as tech solutions, right? I mean, it's not going to be episode three the podcast, <laughs> episode four virtual reality, right? It's more that would be more efficient. It would be a lot easier <laughs> if we just like went through the light center like tool by tool and talked but about I, it. I, I think what
0: teachers do is they try to find or help people find, help learners find good questions. Mm -hmm. And so good questions really are, we're just confronted by them, right? They, They get us to try to think deeply about an area of concern. They're not always answerable. And I think the privileging of efficiency is problematic in that way because it presents questions as answerable.
1: Correct. Right. 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 That right, wrong, that... That feeling compelled to have the right wrong answer. I mean, you and I are very biased against that, even as we recognize. I mean, and we've talked about it just in this conversation. Sometimes you want to know if you are you on the right track. Like, how's my comprehension of this text? But neither of us are particularly compelled by your comprehension of this. the The result of a class would be you have a ninety three percent comprehension of Aristotle. More reading all this Aristotle and all these beautiful lyrics from Sappho has deepened my sense of who I am and how I move around in the world.
0: That's a great place to end, I think. I like that. I got, I'm, I don't know if you can't tell because it's a podcast, but I'm, there's a little tear. I have a little tear.
1: A little (laughs) tear. Just a small tear. Stay tuned next time for a big tear. Well, it was great talking to you, Steve, and it's fun to be in the studio. And uh, thanks for listening to the Twice Over Podcast.
0: Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.